0: What are the possibilities for artificial intelligence in education? Can it be used to engage more students based on what we know about the role of dialogue in learning? These are some of the questions we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated, the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ann Fency, and in this episode, I speak with Donald Clark, expert on artificial intelligence and learning. Ready, set, activate. Donald Clark has over 30 years experience in online learning, simulations, virtual reality, mobile and artificial intelligence projects. He was a founding member of Epic Group PLC and the founder and CEO of Wildfire Learning. So he is a frequent global speaker, blogger, advisor and researcher on AI and learning, and is also a visiting professor at the University of Derby. His recent books include Artificial Intelligence for Learning, How to Use AI to Support Employee Development, Learning Experience Design, How to Create Effective Learning Networks, and Learning Technology, A Complete Guide for Learning Professionals. So welcome, Donald Clark. So excited to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to speak to you.
0: I'm so excited that you've been talking about AI for a while uh, because your your book was pre this whole chat GPT explosion. And there's been lots of, of interest now in generative AI and a little bit of panic, a little bit of excitement. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear your ideas about how we can use these tools to engage learners. And I'm wondering if you could provide some specific examples in different scenarios?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I suppose I, it worries me a little bit, the word engagement, <laughs> because <laughs> it's probably worth discussing that first. I mean, you can be engaged and not learn. You yes. can be engaged. You can be engaged and learn something you already know, or you can be engaged and, absolute, and destroying learning as well, funnily enough. So engagement isn't a pure virtue in learning. Let, let me illustrate this by example. I'm really fond of stand-up comedy. So I love stand-up comedy. I've been going and watching it for decades, and I go to the Edinburgh Festival, where I come from, every year. <laughs> love that. And I'll, yeah, so, I'll, you know, and I watch something in the order of 20 performances over two or three weeks. And you know something, after all these years, I can't remember a single joke. <laughs> and 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 I was massively engaged, believe me, you know, laughing my head off at every single one of them, most of them, certainly. And this is the problem with the word engagement, I think. Engagement can be quite different from learning. The role of emotion in learning is quite complicated. Some emotions uh, can be, in a sense, destructive. You know, fear is a good one, which many kids in school experience and in higher education. So we have to be a bit careful about the word pure engagement, I think. But coming back to your question... I think you have to contextualize this. There are many, many forms of learning. The big one is this difference between, let's say, institutional formal learning, which takes Mm -hmm. place in schools and higher education and workplace training courses. So that's very formal instruction. And then there's informal learning, which is actually where most learning takes place in a lifetime. I haven't been on a course for 35 years or something, but, you know, I've run floated companies in the stock market you know, built companies, done a lot of reading, published a lot of written books, but I haven't been on a course uh, mm-hmm. because I didn't need it. I mean, adult learning. So I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on formal learning in this world and too little on supporting informal learning. That's the first yeah. distinction. Yeah. But let's let's get down to real empirical examples then because you could take, I mean, the big ones are really schooling, let's call it formal schooling, you know, sort of five to 18 type world, and then let's call it higher or tertiary education, then the workplace. Then there's just learning, you know, as, a, as a, an individual, as an adult, as it were. I think in schooling, there is a clear problem. In fact, I, I know from the stats in both the U.S. and across Europe that post-COVID, many uh, were suffering from two things, really. One, some kids have just not gone back to school. It's quite mm-hmm. an astonishing yep. phenomenon. So the rise of homeschooling is true in England and in the U.S.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: It's a very interesting phenomenon, because I think parents realize that actually you can do it on your own, and that school may not actually be right for everyone. I think there's something in this, you know, and therefore if technology can, for example, help solve that problem, because now I think that you have something like ChatGTP and uh, other tools that basically are experts in every subject, certainly at school level. It's almost as if they have a degree in every subject, which no teacher has. I think it gives motivated parents the feeling, yes, I can do this with my kid at home. And I would rather that to avoid the bullying, you know, my kid isn't a normal kid at school. It doesn't fit into that happy-go-lucky, you know, being in the right gang, the right peer group type pressure, maybe bullied a bit and so on. So I think sometimes this opens up a window in a positive way for people Mm -hmm. who may have alternatives. So that's schooling. But by and large, schooling is still, you know, the, the idea that you go to school with your mates and things is still a fundamentally good thing. I'm not criticizing that heavily. But I think the nature of schooling, I think there are a couple of things that will start to happen now that we have something that's approaching good teaching through technology. One is a blurring of this, you have to be in a classroom or not be in a classroom to learn. Mm-hmm. Because it's quite really clear that one-to-one tuition, which is what everyone with any money did before mass schooling post-reformation, because it works. They go back to Bloom's. he would come up with a brilliant paper called famous Two Sigma paper that showed that one-to-one tuition is incredibly powerful. So it's called two sigma because you get two standard deviations from his benchmark. If you just lecture people, you get two standard deviations improvement if you do one-to-one tutoring, which is what this new AI technology is offering. The second thing Bloom really did really quite nicely is write about time to competence. You know, when you're in school, you have a final exam on a specific hour of a specific day in the year and you pass or fail, which is lunacy, really. The same in higher education. You know, you come to the end of a course, you fail a course, you've got to wait sometimes a whole year to reset the course. It's absolutely bananas, really. Mm. Uh, There's no flexibility in the system because it's built around timetabling of teachers, really. So the one-hour lecture is only one hour because the Sumerians had a base 60 number system. There's nothing in psychology learning says anything should be an hour. (laughs) Uh, And of course, that's all about timetabling, which is why recorded lectures are as good to be frank. So I think in context, we, we and going back to the schooling, so, you know, elementary school, mid-school, high school, there I think you've got a blurring, a more blended mix between the use of technology for teaching, especially in this AI age, and also a blurring between that horrible word in English, homework, homework, yeah. <laughs> as if it's a chore. No wonder yep. kids hate it. I'm going to set <laughs> you homework. And of course, it is badly done. Most teachers don't do well at homework. They don't really understand autonomous, independent learning, don't understand interleaving, variation of task. And also, you just traditionally in homework. You know, when I was at school, I got, I'm reasonably good at maths, but I got a maths problem at home. If I was stuck, I was stuck. There was no way of getting out the stuckness. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I couldn't ask parents because they left school at 15. Both of my parents left school when they were very young. And that's true of a lot of working class, poor kids, you know, poor kids, you know, still today with rising inequalities, they're further, the people most in need of education are still furthest away from it because we spend all our money on leadership, all our money in higher education. The rest mm-hmm. of the world is dumped unceremoniously into the rather precarious world. And it's got worse for those people. But I I think school is still, I think we'll see a blurring between that homework and school, between how people learn in school in terms of the use of technology not or in class. Mm-hmm. The problem is that technology, by and large, is a, a you know a round peg in a square hole going into the classroom. The classroom is fundamentally, really fundamentally, a one-to-many teaching environment with somebody at the front or going around checking. It's not built for technology. And I think a lot of people try and squeeze the technology into the classroom, which is an inappropriate context, because there are too many distractions. And uh, the teacher has to be in complete control and you know, for all sorts of complex reasons. So that's schooling. It will have a massive effect on schooling, but schooling still has a dynamic that's different from adult learning. Higher education, interestingly, I think, will be the least active sector in this area. Huh, but for, really? yeah, I think for cultural reasons, really, because I've, I've spent all my life, in, well, you know, in, in and out of higher education all over the globe and i think it's fairly homogeneous you know there first of all there's an inbuilt negativity against technology because well for, no actually first of all there's an inbuilt practice or practice within higher education which is deeply embedded around the lecture and essay yeah so it's almost impossible to no matter how often you and how many arguments you may muster against lecturing as a form of learning lecturing is really easy by the way i've done it all my life. lecturing is easy <laughs> teaching, teaching is hard which yeah. is why I- not much teaching takes place in higher education because people love to lecture. They think that's learning. So le- lecturing and essays is so deeply embedded as a pat as a practice that it's difficult to dislodge. The second thing it's impossible to dislodge, of course, is that um, most people who teach in higher education really don't have a background in teaching. Yeah. And and many many to be to be really br- brutally honest are not that interested in teaching. And uh, so most of the academics I know who reach my age have bought themselves out, stopped teaching. They can't wait to stop teaching. Mm. Uh, And so that's, you know, the the empirical evidence is obvious here. I think there's also a third element there, which is, you know, if you've been a straight A student and spent a lot of your time in your bedroom as a kid, and then you continue and just go straight through the degree, your first class honors, you do your PhD, you've not been out in the real world as much as other people, perhaps, and maybe Mm -hmm. you're a systematic, intellectual, reflective person with less social skills in teaching. And that's why I think it's a fundamental flaw that uh, academics uh, are make the best teachers. I don't, I don't think this is true. I, you know, I've, I wouldn't be, be honest about that because I think it's uh, in the end not. This is the reason why I don't think uh, I think higher education is the least likely to adopt the technology mm-hmm. and well,
0: unless we actually take Boyer seriously and really study the scholarship of teaching, as. Yeah equally as we do the scholarship of of you know knowledge and research and all of the other things that are valued in higher ed yeah
1: that's absolutely right and but but it won't happen yeah. <laughs> it, it won't happen because research is primary it's how people get rewarded and promoted so the incentive is the very opposite of teaching the other side of the coin is it work i think there's also which is why for example I give talks all over the world and when i reach academic audiences they're the audience that believe most in learning styles that's the audience that believe, you know, most in all this old junk from learning theory. And that's because there, there is no training. You know, there's not really sort of continuous professional development in teaching in higher education that you may get in other arenas. And this is not universally true, by the way, but it's a general, Mm -hmm. I'm talking rules of thumb here. You know, there's some really brilliant teachers in higher education and there are some people who use technology exceptionally well and are knowledgeable. But it's voluntary. Yeah, but it's it's not not
0: compulsory the way it is with like, you have to get certified, you know, for K through 12 and Yeah.
1: But I think what will happen sticking to higher education for a moment is there will be a partial adoption. So you see this already. This week, Harvard announced that they have a very famous CS50 computer science course, intro 101 type course. It's massively popular at Harvard. An 11-week course will be delivered by AI. And that's right, because they have the money, they have the wherewithal to do it quickly. Uh, That course will also be free on edX, the 11-week course, for free. That's the way it should be. But very few people will do this. And it will be, it will tend to be in the computer science departments as opposed to, and, and the U.S. is very particular. I studied in the U.S. myself because it, unlike most other places, it has a much stronger liberal arts. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I, I came from that background myself. But it has a much bigger culture of liberal arts than other places. The liberal arts don't exist. If you go, if you go to in, anywhere outside the U.S. really, you, you, people don't even know what the phrase means. <laughs> it's very American. <laughs> And so I think that that's the area that won't adopt this very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the So that's a bit negative, but I think it will on the computer science courses and so on. But actually, what's really interesting here is the, I don't know if you follow Brian Alexander, but I follow the stats on this quite closely in the US. So enrollment in higher education has been falling every year for 12, now 13 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what, that's a really interesting statistic that not many people know, but it's horrifying. it's really quite worrying. The second thing is the massive swing away from liberal arts subjects towards things like computer science and so on, because people are recognizing it, that if you paid that much money and have that much debt, then there has to be some sort of payoff. I'm not claiming that education should be just about that, but people are waking up to the fact that it, you know education is both for life and making a living. I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, But you get the purists on one side and the purists on the other, and both do as much damage in many ways. But there's a recognition, I think, that higher education has to change. So colleges are literally closing down as we speak, Um. and most of them are liberal arts colleges, as we know. So that's higher education. But the interesting one is workplace learning, which you also mentioned there, Anne. And there's a lot of action already there in using AI because they get annualized training budgets. They're not that worried about assessment. Going back to higher education, I think another negative thing which I've noticed is the debate around AI, if it, if it were a pie chart, three quarters of it would be about plagiarism in essays and then mm. a quarter, learning. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, in a sense, that's a symptom of the problem here. There isn't that much interest in using this stuff in learning. The main concern is can students cheat, which yeah. is really worrying because if if the debate is around turning this into a hunter-hunted cat and mouse game, you know, it's that toxic learning environment where people are yes. trying to cheat and it's full of fear and oddness. That's a really bad thing. And so I see very little, some really good debate around AI for learning, but it's a relatively disturbingly small portion compared to plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Workplace learning is quite different and there's lots of really interesting activity there on the picking up on the post-chat GPT thing, which is only November 22. So this I is know, really. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> this has moved really fast. So, I'm involved in all sorts of projects around things like universal course generators, universal teachers. You know, they've really taken it back with gusto because they recognize, I think, for the first time, you know, when you go into a bar or something and you speak to somebody, what do you do? Oh, well, I build e learning content. You get a sort of rolling of the eyes a little bit, you know, because people have been subjected to the sort of next, next cartoon speech bubble yeah multiple question drag and drop stuff which i remember doing literally 30 years ago and not much has changed oh we throw video in now (laughs) so i think i think that world has got fossilized because the tools are controlling what you can and cannot do i really have come to despise articulate and storyline and so on because it it produces this disney disneyfication of learning really Mm -hmm. you know like, I, I just can't watch the stuff any longer. You know, I'm not going to sit and watch a cartoon for half an hour on the Data Protection Act in your company, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm not going to say, you know, click on Peter, speech bubble. Click on Peter, speech bubble, to see what the values of our company are. No, I'll get some abstract set of nouns that I'm not going to remember. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter to me. I think it's got all very hokey and abstract. So the e-learning world will change because content production will be like dirt cheap, you know, cost down almost zero in some cases, you know, that less stock photographs, you'll be able to produce images, which are really contextual and appropriate for whatever you're trying to teach at that moment. And we'll be in a more open input and dialogue, which is why I think people need to pay far more attention to what we know about learning science and learning theory, because Mm -hmm. that's what will inform us. I think this is a, I think in the history of learning technology, you know, I wrote a whole book about that going right back to our early cognitive awakening the cognitive revolution about 50,000 years ago when we first had early cave paintings and so on. I think what's great about this technology is it placed our evolutionary heritage in a way that no other technology has. Dialogue is fundamental to the way the brain and cognition has developed. Mm-hmm. Language is fundamental to, the, to intelligence. There is a myth, I think, that intelligence language is a function of intelligence that emerges from intelligence. I think it's the other way around. I think intelligence is language, and that language allows us to be intelligent, and that's the differentiator between us and other species. We have a infinitely flexible, creative form of language. We don't even have to learn our first language. We don't learn how to, how to listen or understand other people or speak our first language. It sort of happens.
0: Yeah, naturally, yeah.
1: Yeah, so Gary wrote a really brilliant book on this, that primary learning, we have a primary physics, a primary biology, we have a primary language learning thing, but it takes years to teach and learn how to read and write. And yet, and we've gone into this really rather odd mode in education of being obsessed by text, which, and not learning by doing, for example, Mm -hmm. or not. uh, So if you take the three big things, head, heart, and hand, there's a really great book by a guy called David Goodhart on this, We spent all our money on the head, head workers, cognitive skills. Mm -hmm. Yet those are the skills that are most at threat from GPT, because GPT does that actually pretty well, and future versions of this technology will do it superbly well you know, we thought there would be working class people with repetitive jobs would lose all their jobs because of robots. It turned out sure. to be the very opposite. It's if you're working at home on Zoom, doing meetings and writing reports, and if you do what GPT-45678 can do, then you shouldn't be doing what you do, really. So this is a different sort of attack on employment. But I don't think it's a big problem in employment, by the way. There is this old... It's, it comes out of Marx, but it's a ridiculous idea that there is a, a fixed bucket of employment. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is not true, actually. What, what generally happens in economies, uh, and especially in technology and IT, is it creates new forms of employment. The internet has created millions yeah. of new jobs. So yeah. it's, it's not a fixed entity employment. It's a, some things sort of fall off the conveyor belt and other growth comes. In fact, we have pretty much full employment in the US and in Europe at the moment. We have a skills shortage. Uh, so the, you know, I think there's a bit of a myth around that stuff.
0: Let me ask you, though, because you mentioned learning theorists. And yeah. this was something that's that's kind of struck me with some of some of your uh, posts online that i've I've seen is like you're bringing back the oldies and goodies. <laughs> so, yeah. like, who have we probably forgotten about that is now really kind of relevant based on what's happening with AI?
1: Very good question. So, so I've written these blogs, there are about 210, 20 of them, and these are about 220 over many years, uh, you know, of, on learning theorists, very specifically from the Greeks to the geeks, uh, which is what <laughs> the students call. And then I did 25 podcasts, you know, clustering them, things like the cognitivist, Behaviourists, and so on so forth. But reflecting now on the ones I found really useful in terms of this new form of dialogue in AI, I think, first of all, Socrates, and let, even though that was, you know, 4th century B.C., There was the first person who really is a a true learning theorist in the sense that the Socratic method itself, the idea, the basic idea is king learners giving birth to their own thoughts. In other words, you're not giving them the answers or projecting or pouring knowledge into their brain. You're encouraging them to think for themselves and come up with their own answers through realizing their own ignorance or misconceptions of things. Mm -hmm. But you have to be careful with the Socratic method because it's not suitable for everything. the Socratic method in itself is a useful component, but it's not a sufficient sort of theory of learning in terms of the dialogue that chat GPT provides, for example. So I think the the other people, if we move into more more recent ages, we've already mentioned Benjamin Bloom, and I think there's two big things is one-to-one tutoring, personalized learning works. Great. Let's (laughs) let's just buy that for a moment, because I do buy it, especially for learners who have dyslexia or may have a touch of autism or uh, but also, you know, may have a hearing or visual impairment. Oh, that's been revolutionized by AI's text-to-speech, speech-to-text. So let's not imagine that AI has not already been a massive boon to people who have hearing or visual impairment. I, I think there's a, a great deal of... St- the great deal of interesting stuff from Benjamin Bloom around one-to-one tutoring as a superior form of teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And secondly, time to competence, which we've discussed. I think if we get over this idea that you have to finish by Tuesday and you we're going to examine you on Wednesday, then time to competence is dependent on, you know, how long does it take you? Well, as long as it takes for each yeah. individual. And that's another form of species of personalization. So Benjamin Bloom, I think, is the second person to really look at. But it gets really interesting when you move beyond those, beyond Bloom into, there's a big figure in here for me, and that's Vygotsky. Mm. So Vygotsky is in Soviet Russia in the 1930s. He he writes two amazing books, which give us the idea that language plays an important uh, role in learning. So the first big concept he has here is of the knowledgeable other. The knowledgeable other is somebody else who teaches you to speak. So clearly your parents and your peer group teaches you how to use your first language. You know, I grew up learning a Scottish variant of English because everybody I knew is Scottish, hence my accent. The sons and daughters of immigrants will have the language of their peer group, never their parents, which is interesting, because language is essential. And so Vygotsky really explored this in a huge amount of detail. Now, he thought that language was the mediating medium for not only child and brain development, but intelligence. That's what we learn. That's why we are intelligent beings. We have the capacity, and it's not something that, it's not a tabla rasa. You know, we're not injecting language into the brain. We have a predisposition to learn our first language. Yeah, and he calls us the knowledgeable other. Now, that knowledgeable other now, for the first time in the history of our species, can be AI. You get that feeling when you're speaking to GPT, that it's a, a really knowledgeable thing. And yeah. it's what it freaks people out. Yeah. It started, for the first time, we have a piece of technology that seems like an intelligent entity. And that, that's why I think Vygotsky, Vygotsky, we have a lot to learn from Vygotsky on this. He would have loved chat GTP. He also discussed another thing. So you have this language media as a mediation method for learning. He also used the word tools. And that word tools is very interesting and often ignored in Vygotsky. But what what he meant by this is we often use other tools in learning. You know, we use all sorts of learning technology. We use books, for example. Mm -hmm. But tools has quite a wide meaning in this context. You know, a tool can be technology. Of course, Vygotsky didn't didn't live to see the the dawn even of the personal computer uh, and lived in a world that was wholly one of classrooms and books, blackboards and so on. But now that we have this, I think Vygotsky would have regarded uh, ChatGPT 3 and 4 as unbelievably positive tools in learning. It's exactly what ChatGPT does, what he recognized that through dialogue. And, of course, it's a wider sense of dialogue. You have the phonological loop, the internal dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. when I'm sitting in my own, I'm often speaking to myself. People often miss this. You know, if you're, if you're deep, thinking deeply about something, you're often having a dialogue, in an internal dialogue with yourself. That's what Vygotsky tried to surface. That mediation is a complicated thing, and you can mediate yourself in a sense. It med- the t- these tools always med- are best when they mediate through dialogue, which is what AI has allowed us to do, because that's how we construct our own sense and meaning, and that's that's what drives the learning process through dialogue.
0: But this this more knowledgeable other, though you know chat gpt you know 4 or bing or bard or whoever they're not really all that more knowledgeable in terms of like they have the facts they can pull together lots of different ways of how people have used those words but really they're they're about pulling together what other people have said how do we teach people to be critical about the output of what it's saying? Because yeah, there are, you know, fabrications and, you know, it doesn't understand how we learn. It doesn't understand how language is used for learning. So how do we help people use it for learning?
1: Okay. So just before answering some of those questions, I want want to point to another theorist for a moment, because I think, I think some of those things are not quite on point really, from my point of view, for the following reasons. So it's not Donald, I'm referring to learning theory. So if we bring in another figure here for a moment, Anne, and that's Wittgenstein. So Wittgenstein revolutionized philosophy, I mean, perhaps one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. He came up with his first philosophy in the Tractatus, dumped that. He was a genius twice round with his focus on logic and reason and what you might call critical thinking. He put that in a box and said, no, 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 the, the, the world of language is not like this at all. So, first of all, he says that language is a form of it works in the form of family resemblance. And was a word like dog is closely related to the word puppy. Mm-hmm. It's closely related to the word lead, but lead also has a definition, leading an army, for example. So. And, and I was the way language is used and stored and, and used by human beings is one of family resemblance. This is damn close to how large language models work. Yeah. Is, the, me, the meaning of a word is contextualized by its relationship with other words, words. The network matters. And people get this wrong all the time. You know, that horror, that weird, it always hugely annoys me. You've used that word, but actually, if you look at the dictionary, it says something else. And we all have to go off to Webster's and you get boring pedantic debate because meaning does not come from the dictionary <laughs> meaning comes from use that's what dictionaries mm-hmm. look at use and then define the word it's not the other way around so all, all these people are doing is fossilizing language as if there's no semantic shift nothing ever changes and it's hugely annoying really because they don't really understand the fundamentals of linguistics but i think the the idea that meaning is use is a big big thing now stick mm-hmm. that phrase meaning is use What these large languages do is capture something else in language, which Wittgenstein was very good at. I think he called it language games. Whereas when I'm using language, like here we're doing doing a bit of dialogue, although moments mostly monologue for me. I apologize for that. Uh, But you get the idea. We've we've never met before. We we, we, we had a nice chat before we started this. We want to keep it relaxed. We're, We're having dialogue, really. But that's a form of, that's what Wittgenstein would call a language game. Now, if I were speaking and keynoting at a conference, it would be, I would be much more didactic and structured and so on and so forth, but I'm mm-hmm. not. If, I were, if we had met for the first time in a bar for hours, our conversation would be completely different. Oh, here, what do you do? Where do you come from? You're at... So he called these language games. Now, because the large language models have been trained using such a huge corpus of language, it would take you 22,000 years to just read eight hours a day, every day, to read the text.
0: Mm. No. Yep.
1: In the training set for gpt three, never mind four. Now, what AI has captured here, these large language models, is also these language games. So that's why you can go and say, "I want you to be a tutor," and it will behave like a tutor. I want you to be Homer. I've just come back from Greece, and I did that. I'd, I'd been reading the, the Iliad, and I had been at the place Mycenae and turns the places where half these people came from, and it was absolutely astounding. This notion that you can you can make the thing play a language game basically as a teacher. Mm-hmm. As- as uh, you can make it speak like a parrot. You can make it speak like a pirate. You can, oh, yeah. you know, "Hello, parties and so on. Now that's because it is captured more than just the words on a probabilistic, that's why I hate the phrase stochastic parrot. I think that's a caricature, primitive misunderstanding of what this stuff is. It's capturing features of language and reproducing it in such a way, meaningfully, so that, it, and intelligently structured well, often better than a human, and I think, going back to your point, it's better than any teacher because it has a degree in every subject. I mean, it's captured the sum total of human knowledge here. And that's not to say it can't be critical thinking either. So even if you look at canning, I don't know if you've seen the on the launch of chapter UPD uh, 3, there was a video from uh, Can Academy where the, in the higher education example was a debate about the Declaration of Independence and where the word happiness came from. And I, it was absolutely astounding. As an area, I know quite a bit about a degree in philosophy and so on. But it really blew my mind. You know, it goes back to John Locke's essay, where the word came from, why it was, you know, de rigueur at that time in English philosophy and so on. And this is mind-blowingly interesting, way beyond what anyone expected. And if you really, people are making the mistake in thinking that this technology is just generative AI. It's not really. It will summarize beautifully. It will spot mistakes beautifully. It will do all sorts of things, including engage and debate with you fruitfully. Mm. In other words, traditional pedagogic teaching practices, which as I've already stated, are actually few and far between in formal education. I think school teachers are very good at this. I don't think academics, by and large, are, are particularly good at it, to be to be frank. So I think we have the possibility of you know doing that very very quickly in a, in a concept called the universal teacher. So I could go on a lot about Wittgenstein there, but you know that's one figure. There's another really important figure that know, hardly anybody knows about really. You have to, know, if, but if you're in the cybernetics world, you know all about, it, and that's a guy called Gordon Pask, and he was the inventor really, well, not wholly inventor, not him alone, not of conversation theory. And I was, he believed that conversation was fundamental to learning and that how we really learn is through dialogue and he meant he meant dialogue in a much wider sense than you know dialogue as in a chat with somebody Mm -hmm. Uh, for him dialogue was it wasn't a sort of straightforward transactional thing like that by and large we have a dialogue as we move through the world you know if oh you know i'm feeling a bit tired oh yeah i'll go make a cup of coffee that internal dialogue is a form of being in the world Mm-hmm. Even when there's nobody else there, as it were, we interact yeah. with the world through that sort of language and dialogue. Very sophisticated view of the world. And even basically.
0: self-directed learning, you, even though you're only engaging with yourself, you're still engaging with the people who created the materials that you're learning from.
1: That's correct. And he built what's interesting about Gordon Pask, not only, did he, and he knew Marvin Minsky. He knew about AI, and he stayed with Marvin Minsky at MIT when he was in the states and so on. But he built these machines. He's a sort of forgotten hero, really. I've, so, you know, I've always known often because I've been involved in this world, but things like eco-game cast, uh, you know, his boss system. The, these were big consoles, very early days, uh, mm-hmm. and where he tried to apply this learning theory, which is called conversation theory, and, you know, not a fixed exchange of propositions, but an exchange that shapes the thinking and learning of both parties, even the teacher, but also the, more importantly, the learning. And he tried to map out conversation in terms of how we agree, disagree, as we're doing here, you know, you've said, well, what about? And I go, well, I'll respond to that, so and so mm-hmm. forth. We agree, we disagree, we modify beliefs, we change our minds, but we all gain from the conversation. This, for PASC, was the essence of learning. And I think what we've suddenly realized that there may be something in this, and he has a great book called Conversation, Cognition, and Learning, 1975, But and it's a difficult book to read. He was not a great writer, I should add. <laughs> <laughs> and they, and it, the same is true your people say oh, the Socratic method, but, you know, I, I studied Plato in some detail and you know, these are not, Plato's dialogues are not easy things to read because they're highly conceptual and abstract. People haven't picked up on a lot of this stuff because it, it's not easy reading. But PASC had these things called entailment meshes, but he thought there were sort of hierarchies of explanation you needed, a bit like Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. You had to shift learners up and down from levels of conception and understanding in order to conversationally move through the dialogue towards understanding. And I think he's probably right. <laughs> I say probably because I'm still a wee bit ill-formed and I don't have enough detail to map it out in detail. He then went on with another guy, a Dutch guy called uh, Gerard de Zoo, to go on to looking at how maybe one, two, three, four, five learners might interact. And some of those actors may well be AI bots, for example. You know, there's no there's no exclusion of that. Pask would have thought generative AI was absolutely fantastic because it was conversational. Yeah. And it was what he had been working with and towards all of his life. So I think there's a good deal of evidence to show that we have already in the science of learning some very good evidence that what people have uncovered in those contexts, some of them have been heavily involved in technology like Gordon Pask. It all leads to the conclusion that this stuff is heading towards what I call a universal teacher. That concept's quite simple, really. Imagine a teacher that is available 24 hours a day, every day, three, six, five days a year. There's mm-hmm. a degree in every subject. Not only that, though, and this is picking up on something you've just said, Anne, it also has all this learning science and good pedagogy and good teaching practice in dialogue. You're saying, well, suppose we, we pre-prompt it and make sure that it has all that stuff because that's what people are doing as we speak. I'm involved in several projects where that's happening. Let's take a, a, another example, maybe something like a doctor. You go to your physician, Physicians make about 4.7, 4.85% misdiagnosis rate. It's fairly standard. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's one in 20, that's quite high. Now, supposing suppose we get an AI doctor that makes a 2% misdiagnosis rate, what would be the argument for still going to a human doctor? Now, there are some other things like uh, his understanding of your feelings and emotions and being you know, empathetic and friendly and so on. Mm-hmm. But even there, even there on emotions, I've just gone through the process of having my whole uh, body and face captured as an avatar, my speech replicated so it can be, I will have a doppelganger effectively. That was an interesting process because we are now at the level where AI can certainly, it can certainly read emotions in human faces. It's getting quite good at that, in fact. Mm-hmm. Better than any humans, so there's a huge range in abilities here. Some people with extreme examples of autism and so on, they have been real trouble reading any emotion in the human face. Uh, and others are much, much better than that. There's also, interestingly, a gender difference between those two. Women are much better at reading emotion in faces than men, for example. What's interesting there is that if the technology and it can and will, especially through eye tracking, be able to read emotion in people, then you can, then a a universal AI teacher could read the emotion of a learner. That one's Mm -hmm. done. Let's suppose then the teacher then, well, that still begs the question, but can it display emotion? The third one, of course, is feeling emotion. Of course it can't feel emotion because it doesn't have a (laughs) neurophysiological body like us. And therefore, and it doesn't have consciousness and so on. So that, let's put that to one side of it. The interesting thing is, so we, it can read emotions. Can it display emotions? Because actually, when, when I look at a teacher in a classroom, it doesn't really matter what's going on inside the teacher's head, whether the teacher is feeling the emotion is irrelevant. We're all solipsistic beings trapped in our own consciousness. Actually, if it can, if it can display emotion as well, and, is, and it always displays the right emotion. I think we've all had this experience with a teacher. I certainly have where they were a bit cruel, uh, a bit condescending, a bit assuming about the problems you were having in learning. Mm-hmm. You can actually eliminate that by having teachers that are available 24-7 that are wholly benevolent, wholly fruitful, positive, encouraging, empathetic. I don't think that's a bad thing. And the same is true in, as physicians, for example. Mm. And I think we, we will at some point. For the first time in my life, uh, I have worked with technology, learning technology all my life, I see on the horizon the concept, uh, not realizable now at the moment, but quite quickly, I think, of a universal teacher, a universal physician, a universal lawyer, a universal financial advisor or whatever, I think they will become commonplace. But this has huge implications, but benevolent and good ones for me. I'm just back from Africa, from Senegal. It's all very well as sitting in uh, you know, sitting in North America or Europe, you know, bitching about job losses and teaching. But if you, <laughs> if you live in uh, Senegal where I was and you have one doctor for 10,000 people, you have yeah. classrooms that don't have chairs, don't have roofs, uh, don't have books, uh, then uh, you may want to think again about the efficacy of this stuff. Yeah, uh, because, because I think it, the, the huge benefits we have to gain in both healthcare and education are phenomenal. And if we start to let stupid sci-fi ethical thinking stop this, <laughs> then, then I think we will have destroyed something that uh, it benefits the poor. And I think most of the arguments, uh, most of these abstract negative arguments come from the already rich, interestingly, uh, who have plenty of time to reflect on it and justify their their arguments. But uh, I think that's misplaced. Mm. I went on for a long time about those learning yeah. theories because I've taken a deep dive into this. It's just all, all surfaced at the one time.
0: <laughs> so you're talking about a lot of change. And humans are not, are not always so good about change. (laughs) So, and, and I know a lot of classroom teachers and, you know, higher ed faculty, a lot of parents, you know, that are very anxious about all these changes coming to our traditional education system which yeah. by the way i think i've been doing this for uh more years than i care to remember when i uh got my masters over 20 years ago i was thinking oh t- technology is going to revolutionize the, the classroom and the classroom has not changed yeah. <laughs> so we've just managed to try to stuff the square peg into the round hole but what about adoption of technologies? What can we do to start using uh, AI in a way that is useful for us, but not overwhelming either?
1: I think, you know, it's, I hinted at this at the beginning of this uh, this talk, and I think I'm quite skeptical about institutions leading the role. I don't think they're leading anything now. Even the AI research is coming from OpenAI and the big tech companies. You know, It's even come out of higher education into those contexts. All the smart people are now working there. I think it's the wrong place to look and expect the change to come from because they will fight it tooth and nail for obvious reasons. But, you know, that we've had literally, I think, 20 to 30 years. I mean, in America and also in my country, we, we didn't fight tooth and nail when we outsourced all that manufacturing to China. <laughs> you know, we <laughs> accepted that as a good thing. You know, we're all going to be richer. Well, we did We weren't all richer. The, the, the graduate class got richer. The knowledge workers got richer. But we dumped everybody at the bottom, which is why we've had this absolute revolt from people who've had enough of globalization you know and I'm not I'm a far left person not a far right person but I will not buy into this argument that uh, oh suddenly it's bad when my job is at risk. (laughs) My job is to charge kids 50,000 pounds a year for a few lectures and a few essays. I'm going well we should if we have not been thinking about this and I think Covid was a real wake-up call because it showed how weak and ill-prepared schools and higher education were for this. Mm -hmm. Yep, uh, and they didn't know anything they had to pat they were panicked into using zoom the wrong thing to do because they they hadn't thought about it and they had resisted and changed but then suddenly hmm, suddenly enrollment's falling suddenly people are teaching their kids at home maybe we should think about it. everybody's mm-hmm. woken up because of chat gtp but my faith is not in these institutions change will be imposed upon them rather than coming from within them mm-hmm. and now You said something interestingly there about, well, nothing's much changed. Well, it has because there isn't a learner on the planet who doesn't use Google and Wikipedia nearly every day. For 20 years, we've had search, which is really an odd model because it's a a sort of search and retrieve model of knowledge. But boy, has it been useful. And in higher education, for example, I think that it's, it's been massively better. If you do, like you did your master's degree, Now, when I did postgraduate research, I had had to walk up and down the shelves of libraries with cards in my hands. And uh, and, and, uh, who doesn't use Google Scholar? It would be ridiculous not to use Google Scholar, which is AI and search. This is going to change the nature of work itself. This is a profound moment in human history. It will change the nature of work, therefore change the nature of what we have to learn, why we learn, and certainly how we learn. Now, I think the fear thing is right. I think that's a fair point. It comes, every new technology comes with a, a double edged sword of huge excitement and angst at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: But the problem is that we've gone all angst and no excitement in education. And so, all the, you know, the ethical debates aren't ethical debates at all. They're people with no background in moral philosophy or culture or history. So, what it is is thinly disguised activism. They're just looking for the 101 things that can go wrong, <laughs> which is why all the debate is about plagiarism, not about the benefits in learning. And that's not moral philosophy. It's not ethics at all. But this is true of all technology. If I, I often give this example. If I turned around to you and said, I've got this piece of technology I'm in my back pocket, but here's the downside. I'll start with the downside. One and a half million people will die horrible, violent, and painful deaths every year. One and a half million, like a world war every year but it's really good, this technology. It gives you, as humans, so much freedom to move around and do wonderful things. It gives personal agency in a way you've never imagined before. Would you say yes to that technology? One and a half million deaths, deal with the devil on that and take the technology. Now, most people would say, "Ah, that's one and a half million people a year, that's too much. But the technology is the automobile.
0: Mm, Yep.
1: But we all drive cars. I actually don't drive a car. I've never driven a car in my life, but I'm a real <laughs> freaky perfection. <laughs> but most people drive cars, and I don't have anything against cars. But when it comes to education, you know, I used to get this a lot, you know, we'll, you know we, can't, we can't use technology because some kids don't have any technology. Now, I grew up in a house, a working-class house with no books. I can't remember any teacher saying, I'm sorry, Donald, I can't give you, we're not going to hand out any books in school because you don't have any books at home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me? That's why I need books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sometimes the smartest people in the world are just good at justifying their own sort of values and ethical thinking about this, which is why I'm very wary of so-called experts coming into this field, not knowing much about either ethics or AI or learning theory, to be honest, and starting to tell people what's good and bad for them especially if those regulations start limiting freedom of speech and so on, which I think would be a very dangerous thing. We'd be mm. going down the route of China, for example, who have already launched big LLMs. But if you ask it a question about the Chinese Communist Party, you get uh, a glowing report.
0: Uh, yep. Yeah. I don't,
1: I don't, now that's is that the future we want? I don't think it is.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, but what uh, You know, America gave us this great, wonderful experiment in applying enlightenment ideas and, Enshrining freedom of spe- speech in your constitution, it was a great thing for the world. I believe I'm a, a big fan of this. I'm an Enlightenment person, but already I see in my own continent, in Europe, a reversal of that. The EU trying to come in with this over-heavy regulation that almost is limiting what you can say all the time, and I think that's quite dangerous. Myself, I, to give you a trivial example, you know, the EU have a thing called GDPR. I don't think you have this in the US at all. So all those little consent forms that pop up here to manage your cookies, it happens like every five minutes when you're online. That, that was a European p- piece of law, a bit of overreach. So huge, millions and millions of hours of lost productivity because of a bad law. Uh, and I think that's the danger here, that we don't have a balanced view of both the benefits and potential problems. Mm. And focus all, all the ethical debate is really thinly disguised activism.
0: So we talked about the, and Paul Kirshner made this, this point as well about uh, that engagement is a poor proxy for learning, it's but true. we have so many disengaged learners yeah, that's and true. generally you need to be engaged in order for learning to happen. So what yeah. are some ways that we can use technology like AI to Absolutely. intentionally design engaging learning experiences?
1: That's exactly it, yeah. Engagement is attention. You know, there's a funny thing the internal subjective landscape. Engagement is a funny sort of general term. You know, if you ask a normal, they never ordinary people don't use the word engagement very much, but they might say, oh, you've got my attention. Hmm. But hardly oh. anybody would turn around and say, I'm engaged. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but it, we get this language in the learning world that's all a bit artificial, like resilience or something, as if, you know, people, nobody ever in the history of our species has come in to, Come into the workplace and said, "You know what? I really need today a course on resilience." <laughs> <laughs> talking about, it. but of course, L and D want to supply one because that's the new buzzword. But I think coming back to the serious question you asked there, let's let's stay with engagement. I'm happy to do that. Has there been a more engaging piece of technology in the history of our species? No. One million people in two days. A hundred million people in two months. Hundreds of millions of people have it on their smartphone and on their laptop. People think it's wondrous. People think it blows their mind. It's the most mind-blowingly engaging piece of technology that I've ever seen in my life. Possibly we've ever seen in the history of the species. And it only just started in November 22. We'll be six, seven months in, and we will see it improve enormously as we go forward. And I think that's what people are missing here. Let me give you a really trivial example. So I have a friend called Ali Robertson in Scotland, and he teaches young disengaged kids. They call them (laughs) NEATs. Not in ed- not in education or employment, and these are kids who have been troubled with the law already at the age of 16. Now he uses ChatGPT to engage them, and he'll say, "Well, how, what would you like to use it for?" And of course, these kids will uh, be quite jokey with him and say things like, "Can you use it to improve my Tinder profile?" <laughs> so he did, and that's the first thing he did when he showed them. He, he took kids; they all had their, their hoodies up, over you know, nah, you know, they really. And I know these kids; this is the world I came from. I know it well. He put his Tinder profile in. Two days later, the kids came back in, now he's 16-year-olds, and say, oh, you'll never guess, sir. They use the word, sir, which is very endearing, I think.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, yes, sir. You know, you know, I had 20 girls contact me on Tinder, from zero to 20, you know? Yeah. And he was <laughs> so pleased. But, you know, for somebody who's 16, that's a big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. Now he, now he teaches basic skills in that environment. And I think he's right in saying, boy, don't th- let's, en- let's embrace this technology because there are no ends of examples like that where you can just get people into dialogue for the first time he could yeah. then speak to that kid in his world using his language game you know because he's a 16 year old who was a girlfriend <laughs> well fair enough we did it at that age so i think there are all sorts of interesting examples and we have to start using the technology and thinking about it in that way Sometimes the problem is not, you know, you can't just throw these kids straight into a course. They've just had 16 years of being bored by people shoving maths and what seems like irrelevant subjects to them down their throat because they come from working class backgrounds where their parents have already been through a process of being thrown in the scrap heap <laughs> really? by the very graduates who say, well, be like me. And then you go, well, hmm, really, I don't want to be like you, you know, I'm me. <laughs> This is why I think the engagement engagement's interesting here because we've never had a more engaging piece of technology than a dialogue-driven chatbot. Now, once that comes to a universal teacher where we have a living, breathing, avatar-oriented thing, I mean, these kids have no problem with being engaged on social media. You know, every few minutes, you can't get them off this stuff. And I think if one lesson we can learn from engagement in social media is that dialogue matters. These kids are not sitting just watching stuff all the time. They're calling stuff up. They're searching for stuff they're talking to their mates, they're messaging, they're texting, they're shooting videos, sending them to each other. This is massively dialogue-driven.
0: Mm, yep. And
1: But how often do we engage with people like that in learning? Hardly ever. We're still stuck in the one-hour lecture because the Sumerians had the base 60 number system. And they were still too text and bookish which doesn't work with a 14-year-old who isn't going to go to university and who actually wants to be a plumber, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, what we've done is abandoned learning by doing, abandoned vocational learning, abandoned skills-based learning for this idea that everybody should be like me and my middle-class kids, <laughs> you know? Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe that's not the road to happiness for everyone uh, because I'm not too sure that everyone is happy because of that. You know, we have real problems with mental health and people who are, churn through these systems in college and school now and it doesn't surprise me because the pressures are getting immense in terms of assessment getting to college and so on and so forth so I I discussed the Tinder example and I could give dozens and dozens of examples there make it useful make it relevant and because it's personalized you can use this technology and it will immediately appeal to you because it's speaking to you as an individual.
0: Mm. Yeah, I like the the personalized thing, which is something that that AI is really offering an, an amazing opportunity for right now.
1: Yeah, I think that's it. That's a good that's a good word to hang our hat on there, and I think you know personalization in all its multifarious forms. It can be personalization of content and feedback in a formal learning process, but it can also be personalization in terms of motivation. You know, what what, what do you like? Well, like baseball. Well, let's do, let's discuss mass using baseball, which is what the can 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 thing does. Uh, you know, it, it, when it feels people are flagging, it tries to inject some motivational hook to bring mm. you back to the learning path again or the learning journey. Now, that's something you cannot do in a classroom with 30 kids. It's impossible because you can't cognitively diagnose what's going on in their, in their heads at any one time. But yeah. if you have technology, it can diagnose those things. And now that we have technology that seems human, so the famous and Reeve studies, 35 studies at Stanford, showed that we do treat technology as being human. Mm-hmm. Like when, like when uh, Siri popped up a few minutes ago, when we were like it was as if Siri was an annoying person there for me. Yes. <laughs> it was, not a piece of software. It was, oh for goodness' sake, Siri, go away, because you know? <laughs> that's the emotion. We're emotional human beings. We and when things like that happen, that was almost a form of unwanted dialogue. Oh, say, I'm sorry, I'm speaking to Anne. Can you, yeah. can you remove yourself? <laughs> I think that's why this technology is so wonderful. Really, you know, it's like it's human. It yeah. humanized learning. This is the lesson we've got to learn.
0: Mm. So now I have three questions that I ask all of our guests. So first, what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you have experienced?
1: Me personally? Yeah. I think initially looking back, I wish I had known a lot more about how to learn when I was younger. Uh, things like retrieval practice, how to take proper notes. And all. You know, I give keynotes all over the world to learning. And I can be in front of 2,000 people, more. And I look around, and less than half of them are taking notes and they're all learning professionals and my heart sinks I go what are you playing at you know have you read nothing about learning theory don't <laughs> you know don't you know that before I' finished this talk you will have forgotten at least 50% of it before the end yeah and you go wow this is amazing you know these are people who teach other people I think generally coming back to that question about the barriers the badger Barriers for learners sometimes a, l- a lack of that metacognition, how to learn properly, and they go- often get the wrong advice. You can go on a lot of university websites, and it says take notes, great, and then it says underline your notes, highlight your notes, and reread them. No, no, you're looking away from your notes and trying to recall them in your mind so that you yeah. know they have got a long-term memory. Actually, the first one is a really bad learning strategy. The second one is hugely efficacious. So we don't, we, you know, we don't tell people how to learn properly. I think the lack of blended learning is a second one. So a typical higher education institution would use hardly any technology, if the truth be told. Uh, you know, you use a learning BLE of some sorts, but it won't use it to teach. You know, they're not interested in teaching using technology or learning using technology. It's mostly storing stuff or recording lectures or whatever. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think a third one is in higher education, very specifically, of course, is the cult of lecturing in essay setting which is just fossilized behavior, really, I think. Really, the origins of our universities in, the, in a theological context or religious context, you know, we still have a lectern, which is a pulpit. We still have to stand there with a hand on either side with a huge blackboard, <laughs> <laughs> you know. The blackboard was a terrible invention, you know, that's when people just turned their back on the audience, started, stopped speaking to audiences, had their back to audiences and started writing stuff and broadcasting it off a screen. PowerPoint's just a big blackboard, really. The data on student attendance of lectures is quite interesting and, of course, completely and utterly ignored. But there's the big study at Harvard where they put GoPro cameras across a number of departments in a number of lectures. So the average number of students that didn't turn up was 40 percent. Forty percent of students didn't turn up for lectures after the first six months in the first year because some of the lectures were so bad. Now, imagine you ran a restaurant and people had paid really, this is a Michelin-style restaurant, people had paid top prices to attend your lectures and 40% don't turn up, you'd go, my goodness, this food must be really bad. But that's not the reaction. The reaction in higher education is, aren't students stupid these days? (laughs) And of course, if you went back 30 years, exactly the same thing happened when I was younger at university 40 years ago, 40% of people didn't turn up for lectures. But of course, we'll stick with lectures. Why? Because it's got nothing to do with pedagogy or learning. It's got everything to do with embedded practice. Mm-hmm. so cultural courses the culture of lectures and essays the lack of blended learning people use technology as an adjunct they just like velcro they stick it on whatever you're oh we'll still have the classroom courses we'll call it hybrid learning no no <laughs> hey, that's just sticking two things together with a bit of tape you know <laughs> uh, but the big one I think is the, the lack of knowledge of learning theory. I think the great thing about the technology that's just emerged which is why it's so different from anything we've experienced in our species is we know we, it plays to this idea that learning is a process, not an event. Mm. You can carry, you, you, it's almost like performance sport. You can pick up anything at any time and learn anything on any subject at any time, anywhere. Mm. And it does it in a, a human dialogue fashion. I think that's what we're really picking up on now that this technology really is entirely suited to teaching and learning.
0: Well, then that brings me to my next question about the future. So what should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that isn't fully being addressed yet?
1: Well, I think we should be bold. I think the people in OpenAI, I think America really good at this. America post-war had a really interesting settlement started by a guy called Vannevar Bush, who, who said, if we're going to moonshot this stuff and make big advances for everyone in society then we get government, the universities and the private sector together. And that's still the model in the US. It was the model on the Manhattan Project. It was the model from the moonshot. It was the you know, I think America's the leading light year and it's no surprise that AI has emerged by and large from a few American companies. And so I think, you know, we have got to get out of this negativity around AI and start looking at the benefits. And mm-hmm. the future for me is, I'm working hard on this notion of a universal teacher using it to lower costs, increase accessibility. I think that's what we should be doing, but we should be investing huge sums in this.
0: Okay. So as we wrap up, my final question is, what is the one thing you want people to remember from our conversation about learner engagement?
1: I forgotten you had that question. That's a
0: lot. So, <laughs> but what's, what's the one okay. thing that, that you want people to remember? Imagine they were Taking notes during the whole thing, so.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. well, you know, that's that's the one thing. That, funny enough, you've anticipated what I'm just about to say. So I'm I'm 66 years old, you know, and I, and and it drives me bonkers, bananas to see that learning professionals don't take notes. Now I I have a notebook here. I have literally dozens and dozens of these notebooks, and I don't go anywhere without a notebook because I know how fallible my working and long term memory is. Mm-hmm. Even when I was younger. Now I. I shared a platform once with Richard Branson, who you may know, and I mean, I, he's quite big in Europe, he, Branson, Virgin Airlines and so on. And he is massively dyslexic. And he said something very interesting. He said, you know, I, would, I wouldn't be in business if I didn't have notebooks. And what he meant by that was, uh, you know, school was hard for him because he was dyslexic and he failed massively. He didn't go to university but became massively successful in business. Not an unusual tale. Uh, most of the leading tech people, you know, crapped out of college and one for another. Sam Altman, Bill Gates, you know, they, they, they were all from a similar mold. But one thing I would say is, take notes, guys, just take notes. <laughs> because everybody's got a novel, everybody's got several novels and several brilliant ideas in them, which they forget. and they they, they say oh that's brilliant but of course once it's forgotten it's gone forever you've forgotten that you've forgotten so taking notes is a really brilliant learning strategy for everyone but when you learn to take notes well that's really amazing in your own words, using the little diagram. And I've been working on another project using AI which helps students take notes. As you know, when you take if you're taking notes uh, with a pen and pencil, you know, it doesn't matter if it's keyboard, people think that writing is superior to keyboard, it's mm-hmm. not. the research is clear it's not. As you're taking notes, you're not paying you can't multitask, so you're not paid attention to what the person has just said to you and therefore you missed it. So note taking can be quite inefficient. So we're building systems that take the transcript of the person who's teaching you let's say a lecture, even though I don't like them, compares your notes to the transcript of the lecture and it identifies what you've missed. And just, yeah. it doesn't fill it in for you automatically because the point is you learn by taking the notes. Yeah. What it does is just suggest headings and pumps them into the bits where it's missing and then suggests places where you can go find information on that stuff. It will also maybe put links for a deeper dive or an understanding of a concept or YouTube video, whatever, you know, that you might find useful. It will also summarize your own notes. Summarization is an amazingly efficient thing. It's essentially what writing an essay is. I think there are all sorts of areas, There's are 101 different ways you can use AI to aid learning as a sort of learner support thing. But I think the notes taking thing is really interesting. Take mm-hmm. notes guys, because if you don't, you're just going to forget stuff. And forgetting, most learning is forgetting. <laughs> that's, <laughs> the, that's the truth. We forget almost everything as soon as you try and learn it. <laughs>
0: Well, Donald Clark, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I've already been really excited about AI, but now you've just given me a lot more things to think about and look forward to. And I really appreciate you sharing all of that you have.
1: Yeah, it was a pleasure. And it was, a. I mean, I'm still amazed that we can do this. You're you're on the other side of the ocean from me, you know, and here we are. I can see you in full technicolor, as it were. I can see your little things in the back of your room. I can see the trees through your window there. I think it's still amazing that we can do this for free. Yeah, but yep. know, none of this is possible without tech. None of it is possible without AI as well. And uh, let's embrace it and celebrate it a bit rather than being, you know, negative about it all the time. I'm amazed that we can do this because it is a good thing to do, isn't it? We, we didn't know each other before. We've had a nice chat. Uh, we're going to share this podcast with other people. I think that's a good thing. I, I don't see the downsides of any of this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Learner Engagement Activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ian Fensy with sound editing and production by Ian Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org.